Chapter thirty five of Herb of Grace. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Rita Boutros. Herb of Grace by Rosa Nuchette Carey. Chapter thirty five Via Dolorosa. Bleed on beneath the rod, weep on until thou see. Turn fear and hope to love of God, who loveth thee. Turn all to love, poor soul. Be love thy starting point, thy goal. Be love thy watch and ward, and thy reward. Christina Rossetti It was the feast of the Epiphany, and morning service was just over in Rotherwood Church, when Elizabeth Templeton came out of the porch and walked slowly towards the gate, as though she expected someone to overtake her. At the sound of short hurrying footsteps behind her, she turned round and welcomed the newcomer with a faint smile, and they went on together. The Reverend Rupert Carleon had been taking the service at his son's request, and now as he walked beside Elizabeth and tried vainly to adapt his brisk rapid step to hers, he looked more than ever like a grey-haired, shabby David Carleon. The resemblance between father and son had always been striking, and even the mannerisms and tricks of speech were absurdly similar. A dry, chippy little man, Cedric had once called him, and now in his worn Inverness cape and slouched clerical hat he seemed smaller and more shrunken than ever. It was a lovely winter's day, and the hoar-frost on the hedges glittered in the sunshine. The air was crisp and buoyant in spite of the cold. But Elizabeth, who so reveled in the beauty of nature, and thought every season good and perfect, now only glanced round her with the indifferent air of one whose thoughts were elsewhere. "'You are going to the vicarage?' she remarked at last. "'I must not take you out of your way.' "'Oh, I will walk as far as the white cottage with you,' returned Mr. Carleon briskly. "'You have promised to spend my last day with my boy and me, so I shall be sure to turn up at tea. Charrington will give me some luncheon, and then I have two or three visits to pay for David. He is worrying himself dreadfully about that cobbler's child.' "'Ah, poor little Kit,' observed Elizabeth sadly. "'How sorry Mr. Herrick will be. Kit is his special protégé.' But Dr. Randolph says that she could never have lived to grow up. Her stepmother is nursing her devotedly, but it is so sad to see Caleb Martin. He is quite bound up in the child, and it seems no use to try and comfort him. Ay, it is the Lord's will, he said to me yesterday, and maybe Kit will have a fine time when the angels make much of her. But what will Mam and I do without her? That is what I want to know." "'To be sure, to be sure,' returned Mr. Carleon hurriedly. "'That is what we all want to know. "'Well, Elizabeth, you will do your best to make my boy hear reason. "'Theo and I have failed, and this is our last chance.' "'I will do what I can,' replied Elizabeth dejectedly. "'But David is a difficult patient, and I very much fear that even I shall have little influence with him.' It is so strange, she continued sorrowfully, that with all his unselfishness he should think so little of our feelings in this. Oh, you must make allowances for the morbidness of disease, returned Mr. Carleon, shaking his head. Sick people have their fancies. 
You must not lose heart, my dear. Remember, you are my chief comfort as well as David's. Then again she tried to smile. The next minute they came in sight of the white cottage, and Mr. Carleon left her to fulfill his self-imposed duties. Elizabeth was right when she confessed that David Carleon was a difficult patient, for his high spirit and energy had prevented him for a long time from owning he was ill. Even in the early days of their engagement there had been symptoms that ought not to have been neglected, but he had fought his languor and fever manfully, and even Elizabeth knew nothing of an alarming attack of faintness that had followed an unusually hard day's work. Afterwards he had taken cold, and his illness had been so sharp that Elizabeth in desperation had summoned his sister, but even then David had absolutely refused any further medical advice, and had also resisted all his friends' entreaties that he would be moved to the vicarage or the woodhouse to be properly nursed. His old diggings were good enough for the likes of him, he would say, and though Mother Pratt had her failings, she was not a bad sort and when Elizabeth pressed him more closely he had seemed quite worried. "'Do give me my way in this,' he said to her coaxingly. "'If you know how I love this dear old cottage. It was in this room I first saw you, dearest. You were standing by that window in the sunshine when the vicar brought me to see the place, and you turned round with such a beaming smile on your face. I think I loved you then. I could not be so happy anywhere else.' and Elizabeth had reluctantly yielded her opinion. But the humble cottage rooms had been beautified and transformed by hers and Dinah's thoughtful care for the invalid, and one comfort after another had found their way from the woodhouse. The very couch that Dinah had used in her illness, with its soft silk cushions and eider-down foot quilt, the golden-black screen from the inner drawing-room, and a favorite easy-chair that David had often praised, were all at the white cottage. Nor was Mr. Charrington behindhand in his attentions. His housekeeper, Mrs. Finch, always prepared the invalid's dainty little dinners, the excellent beef-tea and soups, the jellies, rusks, and delicate puddings, were all Mrs. Finch's handiwork. Mrs. Pratt's cookery was not to be depended on, and though she pretended to grumble at other folks' interference, she was only too glad to be saved trouble. It may be doubted whether David Carleon really realized his own serious condition, until the physician's opinion had been made known to him. Advance thesis, he muttered thoughtfully. But when Dr. Broderick proceeded to recommend Mentone, or some southern health resort for the winter— he had turned upon him almost abruptly. "'I suppose Davos Platz would not cure me?' he asked. Then, as the doctor hesitated with the natural dislike to give pain, David continued bluntly, "'It would be the truest kindness on your part, Dr. Broderick, to tell me the truth. If I take your advice and go to one of these places, may I expect to get well in time?' "'I am afraid not, Mr. Carleon,' returned the physician reluctantly. "'It would be wrong of me to let you go away with this idea. "'You have consulted me too late. "'The disease is too far advanced. "'But it is my duty to tell you "'that life would certainly be prolonged in a warmer climate.' "'There, David,' and the Reverend Rupert Carleon "'looked pleadingly at his son. "'Wait a moment, father,' returned David firmly. "'I have not quite finished my questions.' 
Let us understand each other, doctor. If I go away, you tell me my life will be prolonged. Do you mean for years? Dr. Broderick shook his head. Oh, I see. But David tried not to look at his father's pinched white face. You mean months, probably. Yes, yes, returned the doctor hurriedly. With care and under favorable circumstances, there might be no further breakdown for another year. But, with a keen look at his patient, I will not undertake to promise this. I quite understand, returned David quietly. Dr. Broderick, I am sorry, but I cannot take your prescription. They sent my mother to Davos Platz. There seemed hope for her, and she died away from us all. And one of my sisters died at Mentone, too. But I do not intend to follow their example. And then he had risen from his chair and put an end to the interview. Nothing would induce him to go abroad. Even when Elizabeth promised that she and Dinah would go too, his resolution to remain in England had been unshaken. "'Why should I let them sacrifice themselves for me?' he said to his father. "'Am I not bringing trouble enough on Elizabeth? Why did I ever speak to her? I was mad to let her engage herself to me. I might have known how it would be.' And that day David's despondency was very great." but at other times he made heroic efforts to hide his deep inward sadness from Elizabeth. He was so young, and the love of life was so strong within him, and the thought of disease and death so terrible. Sometimes in the dark hours of the winter night, when his racking cough would not let him sleep, he wrestled with his despair as Christian wrestled with Apollyon. A soldier who refuses wounds and death, he would say to himself, a minister of christ who fears to tread in his master's footsteps what is he but a coward and deserter and i am both and then the torrent of his human passion would sweep over his soul his love for elizabeth the knowledge that but for this hereditary malady he would have had the blessed certainty of calling her wife what a noble life they two would have lived what plans of unselfishness they had formed how the treasures of their happiness would have overflowed and fertilized other and more barren lives, and now not life but death claimed him. Ah, no wonder if his human weakness blanched at the prospect, if his heart at times quailed and grew sick within him, for when one is young and happy it is not easy to die, and fuller life, not rest, is the thing desired." But there were times when his fears seemed lulled and tranquilized, and when, with the strange hopefulness that was a feature of his disease, he would even delude himself with the idea that the doctors were wrong, and that he would surely get better. These intervals of comparative brightness would come to him when the sun shone, or his nights had been less suffering, or when Elizabeth was with him. Her presence so rested and stimulated him that it was impossible for him always to realize the truth. I can think of nothing but you, he would say to her. I could think of nothing but you. The sitting-room at the white cottage looked snug and cozy that morning. The fire burned cheerily, and David Carleon lay on his luxurious couch in the sunshine, in a perfect nest of pillows, carefully screened from draughts, and with a small table beside him, with flowers and fruit and books, 
all carefully and tastefully arranged by Elizabeth's own hands, on her way to church, while the invalid was still in his bedroom. It was a good day with David, and the old cheery smile was on his lips as Elizabeth entered, but as she knelt beside him to give him her usual greeting, the ravages of the fatal disease were fearfully perceptible in the strong light. The hollowed temples and the sharply defined features, the tightened skin, the hectic flush, the emaciation and shortness of breathing, and the constant cough, all told their sad tale of rapid decline and decay. Too late, she knew it well, for any human skill to arrest those symptoms. No earthly care and love could preserve that cherished life much longer. "'You are late, dearest,' he said, holding her hand. "'I saw the church-goers pass a quarter of an hour ago. I expect you and my father were gossiping as usual. But all the same, I know my good fairy has been at work.' with a glance at his flowers. "'You must not spoil me like this, my darling.' And he raised her hand to his lips. "'You know I love to do it,' returned Elizabeth gently. And then she brought a low chair to his side and placed herself where he could see her. He would lie for hours contentedly watching her as she worked or read to him. Sometimes the thin hand would touch a fold of her dress caressingly, as though even that were sacred to him and not a change of the speaking face or an intonation of her voice would be lost on him. Perhaps no two men were more dissimilar than David Carleon and Malcolm Herrick, and yet they were alike in this, that they each loved Elizabeth with a profound and noble love. "'You are looking serious, dear,' he said presently, as Elizabeth made a pretense of sorting the silks of her embroidery. That little piece of embroidery with its gay silken flowers became one of Elizabeth's dearest relics. It was David who helped her choose the shades, who insisted on a spray of his favorite lilies of the valley being inserted. How he had praised her skill and made his little jokes over her industry. But the screen would never be used by him now, and the stitches were put in perfunctorily and with a heavy heart. Elizabeth had made no answer to David's remark about her gravity. She was trying to collect her thoughts for the business she had in view. But the next minute a hand was laid upon her work. "'Tell me all about it,' he said persuasively. "'Of course I know you and my father have been brewing mischief. I think I can read your very thoughts,' as Elizabeth looked up at him. "'You need not try to hide things from me.' "'I could not if I tried,' she returned in a low voice. "'David, I want you to do something for my sake. "'Your father and I, yes, and Dinah too, "'have been making such a nice little plan. "'We have heard of a delightful house at Ventnor. "'It belongs to a friend of Mrs. Godfrey, "'and it is so comfortable and so beautifully furnished "'and with such a pleasant view. "'You are so fond of the sea, David, "'and your father loves it too, and we thought—' hesitating a moment, as she felt the grip of David's fingers round her wrist. Dinah and I both thought it would be a capital arrangement to take Red Bray for three or four months. There would be plenty of room for you and your father, and Theo too, she continued as he remained silent. And it would be so nice for us to be together. And our old nurse, Mrs. Gibbon, you know Mrs. Gibbon, dear, would help us to take care of you. David drew a deep breath. "'Yes, I see,' he returned slowly. 
and all the expense and trouble would be for me. Don't I know your generosity, Elizabeth, in a choked voice, but it is too much. I cannot do it. Don't you know, darling, don't we both know, that nothing really matters? Ventner will do me no good. Let me bide where I am. And David's voice was pathetic in its pleading. Let me die in this dear old cottage. No, no, returned Elizabeth, bursting into tears. David, how can you be so cruel? Surely you wish to stay longer with me. Why need we be parted yet? Think of it, dear, that it is for my sake and your father's and Theo's. If it is a sacrifice, it is a sacrifice for those you love. Oh, David, my David, it is such a little thing I ask, just for us to be a few months longer together. I know how you hated going abroad, and I would not have pressed it for worlds. But Ventnor, oh, David, you cannot have the heart to refuse me. And Elizabeth broke down utterly and hid her face in her hands. Perhaps it was as well that she did not see David's expression that moment. As he lay back upon his pillows, his face was deathly. Why did they ask this of him? He was just growing more resigned and peaceful. Those agonized prayers of his for aid and succor had been answered, and the deep blessedness of an accepted cross seemed to fill his soul with a strange calm. He must die, and he knew it but his heavenly Father had been merciful to him, and death had lost its terrors, and now his longing was to die in the village he had chosen as his home, and under the shadow of the church where he had ministered as God's priest. He knew where they would lay him. He and Elizabeth had chosen his last resting place, and she had listened dry-eyed to his simple directions and wishes. He had talked out his heart to her, and her unselfish sympathy had been his greatest comfort. But now she was asking this sacrifice of him, and how was he to refuse her? And yet, if Elizabeth had guessed how, the thought of that exile filled him with dismay and desolation. She would surely have denied her own craving for a few more weeks of life. But David knew better than to tell her. Presently the hot hand was laid on her head. Elizabeth, let me see your dear face. You and my father shall have your way, darling. I will go to Ventnor. David's breathing was so labored that he was obliged to stop here. But Elizabeth, with a cry of joy, threw her arms round him. Oh, David, dear, thank you, thank you. You have made me so happy. And the smile he loved so well beamed through her tears. But David's answering smile was rather forced. "'There is little cause for thankfulness,' he replied wearily. "'A poor helpless invalid, who will only give you trouble. "'But there is one thing you must promise, dearest.' "'And as she looked at him expectantly, he whispered, "'You must promise to bring me back here.' "'Then Elizabeth bowed her head in silence, "'for she knew too well what he meant.'" End of chapter 35